Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Please stand with me out of honor to God and His Word as I read. Jesus speaking here says, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Thank you. you. may be seated. Looking this morning, a message I've entitled Discipline. Discipline, and you can see why from the text there, uh, how the discipline is happening for this person who has sinned against somebody else. But speaking of discipline, and I already told this one before, but I like it, so I can tell it again because I'm the preacher. But anyway, there was this monastery. And this monastery, and they were known for being very strict in their discipline, very strict in their discipline. In fact, they were so strict that each monk could only speak two words per year. Two words per year. Well, there's this new monk that got started, and he had to wait a whole year till he could say his first two words. So he goes to the head monk, and the head monk says, Okay, what are your two words? And he says, Food, bad. Well, then he goes back to his room. He's got to wait a whole other year till he can say two more words. And so he comes back at the end of that, that year, and the head monk says, Okay, what are your two words? He says, Bed, hard. Then he goes back to his room. He's got to wait a whole other year till he can say two more words. And so at the end of that year, he comes back to the head monk. And the head monk says, okay, you can say two words. And the monk says, I quit. And the head monk says, you might as well. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. <laughs> Let's look this morning at discipline. Discipline. First of all, looking at the problem. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 15. A fellow believer... He says, a brother, and really in the Greek it could be brother or sister there, you have a fellow believer, a brother or sister who sins against you. That's a problem. Somebody sins against you, a fellow believer. Now, forgiveness is not the issue. This is where I told you we're going to review a little bit from a couple weeks ago. Forgiveness is not the issue. We must forgive others. As, believing, as believers, forgiving others is who we are. As believers, forgiving others is what we do. So this is not a matter of forgiveness here. In fact, you may remember that we looked at forgiveness from verses 21 to 34 a few weeks ago. And one of the things I talked about was the extent of forgiveness. And the extent of forgiveness is to be complete. In verse 22, Jesus tells Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And if you do the, the math there, you could come up with 490. But really the point that Jesus is making, since the number of seven, the number seven in the Bible, is a number of completeness, he says we need to forgive people completely. The idea of 70 times 7 is overflowing completeness. We are to forgive and forgive and forgive again. Now this doesn't mean that you'll be best friends with the one you forgive. This does not mean that you'll ever forget what they did to you. This does not mean that you approve, you condone, excuse, or ignore what they did. But you and I are to forgive as many times as it takes. Our forgiveness is to be unlimited like God's forgiveness is unlimited towards us. Now, forgiveness is not always easy for Christians, but it's always possible. By God's grace, it's not easy, but it's always possible. And remember this. We have been forgiven way more than we need to forgive. Amen. Ours was an eternal offense against God. Our sins were an eternal offense against God. Whatever somebody does to us, theirs is a temporal offense against us. 
The sins that people do to us are minute when compared to the sins that we commit against God. You remember this slide from a few weeks ago? This is how God forgives. One cross plus three nails equals forgiven. I love that. One cross plus three nails equals forgiven. God has unlimited forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. So a couple weeks ago we looked at the extent of forgiveness, complete. And then we looked at the example of forgiveness from verses 23 to 34. Jesus told a parable. He told a parable about a guy that owed the king a bunch of money. I mean, just more than he could ever repay. And the man goes to the king and says, Look, I can't, I can't pay this back. And the king says, Well, I'm going to sell you and your whole family into slavery until you pay what you owe me. And the guy bows before the king. He says, Look, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And the Bible says the king had compassion on the man and he forgave him completely. And then that very man goes out and somebody owed him just a little bit of money. He goes out, he grabs a man that owed him money by the throat and he says, you pay me everything you owe me. Well, in the parable, we're to follow the example of the king who completely forgave the one that owed him way beyond what he could ever pay. And so in the example of forgiveness, we saw Jesus' parable there. And then what about Jesus on the cross? Remember what he said? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He didn't wait for somebody to ask for forgiveness. He didn't wait for those Roman guards to ask him for forgiveness. He didn't wait till the Jewish leaders came and asked him for forgiveness. He didn't wait 2,000 years for you and I to come and ask him for forgiveness. He took the initiative. He says, Father, forgive them. Do you think it was easy for God to forgive? Do you think it was easy when Jesus asked his Father to forgive? Do you think it was easy? I mean, think about it. His perfect son was violently crucified by imperfect, finite, weak, sinful human beings. I mean, God the Father could have just plucked off every single Roman guard, every single other person that was involved. Jesus said, no, don't do that. Father, forgive them. Do you think it was easy? That God's perfect Son was violently crucified by imperfect, finite, weak, sinful human beings? I submit to you that this is the most difficult example of forgiveness in all of history and all of eternity. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Now, God did. But it wasn't easy. Remember what I said earlier? Forgiveness is not always easy for Christians. But it's always possible. I don't think forgiveness was easy for God either particularly in that moment. But it was possible. And he did. And so remember, my friends, when we forgive, we imitate Jesus. When we forgive, we are acting like God. And so there's this problem, Jesus tells us in verse 15. Somebody has sinned against you. He's not talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness is already taken care of. But he does give us a process. What do you do? This person sins against you. He's already forgiven. But what is the process? The process is, first of all, individual confrontation. And notice here, we don't wait for them to come to us. We go to them. Let's look back to verse 15. Moreover, if your brother trespasses against you, you go and tell him his fault. Again, like Jesus on the cross, he didn't wait for people to come to him and say, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. He took the initiative. Father, forgive them. Somebody sins against you. Somebody sins against me. We need to go see them. We go to them. We don't wait for them to come to us. But the process is individual confrontation. The offended 
and the offender. And Jesus says here, verse 15, tell his fault. In the Greek, that means to convince him or convict him. So you go see this person, him or her, you see this person that sinned against you, and you go, you convince them, look, you have sinned against me, you have hurt me, and here's what you did. But notice, it's just the offended and the offender. It's private. Privacy helps to fend off embarrassment. Privacy helps to fend off any gossip. It's just the individual who is harmed and the individual that did the harming, just the two, individual confrontation. You know, often in church, individual confrontation is the last stage rather than the first. What do I mean? We tell everybody else except the one that's hurt us, right? We go, can you believe what she did to me? Can you believe what he did? And we go tell everybody except the person that hurt us. Jesus said, don't do that. Go to the person directly and convict them, convince them. Tell them what they did to you. And so the process begins with individual confrontation. And then the second step is witness confrontation. If that doesn't work, then witness confrontation. Take one or two more with you, Jesus says here in verse 16. And by the way, this is scriptural from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. Look what the Bible says. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sins. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. And so from the Old Testament, you're to take one or two, maybe three with you for this witness confrontation, Jesus says. So it's the offended party with one or two others that come. Now, while Jesus doesn't tell us how to pick these one or two others, preferably these would be witnesses to the offense. People that would say, you know, you did hurt him. I saw you do it. I heard you do it. So preferably be somebody that actually saw the, the sin go down. Not only that, but having multiple witnesses, they serve as witnesses to the second confrontation. So in other words, you went one-on-one. -on -one, nobody else knew about that. But now you're bringing two or three more, and they'll say, yes, he did this properly. He told us that he went privately. Then he asked us to get involved. And so he's going to step two, taking one or two witnesses with him. Multiple witnesses guard against false accusations. And again, Jesus doesn't give us particulars here, but it would be wise, if this happens to you, it would be wise for you to select spiritually mature individuals, even church leaders, who are fair, who are truthful, who are loving, and who are peaceable. Church leaders that desire to resolve the problem, not condemn the problem maker. And taking one or two others with you also helps to ensure that the offended has a legitimate concern and is not acting on personal preference. Well, I know he's not actually sinning, but I don't like what he's doing. Or acting on a personal vendetta. Well, I know it's not sin, but I just don't like him. I just don't like her. And so when you get more people involved, you're not going to have somebody that's just making it up because you're bringing on more witnesses that are going to corroborate, yes, there was a sin. He sinned against him. He sinned against her. And we are witnesses to that. And so Jesus said, here's the steps. Here's the process. Somebody sins against you, go tell them. Just private. Just the two of you. If that doesn't work, then get one or two others and go and confront again. But if that doesn't work, then you need to bring it to the church, what I call ecclesiastical confrontation. Why would you bring it to the church? Well, the church is being misrepresented by the erring brother. The brother that's sinning against you or the sister that's sinning against you, they are misrepresenting the church. But also this step, step should serve as a strong deterrent. I mean, who wants their dirty laundry publicly aired at church? 
And so if you go to them individually and that doesn't work and you go to them with a couple more and that doesn't work, when you say, okay, I'm going to step three, I'm telling everybody in church, the hope is that they'll say, you know what, okay, let's settle this, let's fix this. I don't want everybody knowing what I did to you. But if that doesn't work, notice what Jesus says in verse 17. That's where it comes in, ecclesiastical excommunication. Kicking the person out of the church. Let's read what it says. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. So this is excommunication. Now, removing somebody is to maintain the purity of the church. Removing somebody is to cause the erring brother to miss church fellowship, to miss church worship, desiring restoration. You don't kick them out and say, ah, that's what you get. Ah, you got what was coming to you. You kick them out so they say, you know what? I really miss church. I really miss worshiping. I miss my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want back in. That's the whole point. But you know, when things in the church reach this level, most people excommunicate themselves. And they either quit church or they go to another church where they're not known. But this was not an option in those days. Communities were very tight-knit and churches were very few and far between. So if you went to a Christian church and you got kicked out of there, you had nowhere to go. Here you just go down the street. You just go around the block. It was not so in that day. But please understand this. Excommunication does not have to be permanent. It does not have to be permanent. If there is genuine confession and repentance, we must respond with genuine reception and acceptance. Let me say that again. If there is genuine confession and accept, uh, excuse me, if there is genuine confession and repentance, we must respond with genuine reception and acceptance. And so you go through the process. And the person ends up getting kicked out of the church. That's not the end of the story. If they repent, if they confess, we receive them. We take them back individually. We take them back collectively as a church. But for those churches that engage in what's known as church discipline here from these verses, how are churches viewed that carry out excommunication? Well, number one, by the public, they are viewed as being unforgiving. When they hear that somebody got kicked out of church, they say, well, that church is unforgiving. Well, as I already said, forgiveness is already extended. Forgiveness is already a done deal. We're not talking about forgiveness here. We forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. No one should be disciplined who hasn't been forgiven. But the public looks at the church to kick somebody out and say, oh, they're unforgiving. Or they'll say, you know what? That church is unloving. Can you believe what they did? They kicked out one of their own members. They're unloving. Discipline is precisely because they are loved. Think about it, you parents. Did you discipline your children because you hated them? Or did you discipline them because you loved them and you cared about them? And even God disciplines His children. Look here from Hebrews 12:6. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. And the church is to discipline its own. And so people from the outside looking in, they'll say, well, that church is unforgiving. Not true. That church is unloving. Not true. And perhaps the worst, they'll say, well, that church is cultish. They're a cult there. They're kicking people out. If somebody doesn't believe, uh, agree with the preacher, somebody doesn't agree with the deacons, they kick them out. They're a cult. None of these are true. When a church is obediently following the commands of Jesus, 
We are not being unforgiving. We are not being unliving, unloving. We are not being a cult. We're being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So somebody sins against you, what do you do? Individual confrontation. Witness confrontation. Ecclesiastical confrontation may be resulting in ecclesiastical excommunication. But what if somebody hasn't sinned against you, but they're still caught in sin? So they didn't do anything to you directly, but they're still caught in sin, and you realize they're sinking fast. What do you do? Well, Paul addresses that. Look here, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, <coughs> excuse me, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. So Paul addresses, this isn't somebody that sinned against you, but this is somebody, a brother or sister, who is sinning, they're caught up in that sin, and we still need to intervene to help them. We are to seek their restoration. Notice what he says, you who are spiritual, restore. We are also to seek their restoration. We are to do so in meekness, Paul says. That word meekness refers to strength under control. You need to be strong, but you need to be in control. And Paul also warns that we must beware of falling into the same sin. In other words, don't confront a man who gambles in a casino. And so you go in the casino to confront this guy who's gambling, and all of a sudden you see all the lights flashing, and you see the big jackpot, and you say, well, let me put a quarter in there or something. Let's see what happens. You don't confront a woman who gossips after listening to her latest juicy tale. Beware of falling into the same sin that you're confronting. Pride has no place in the process. Whether it's prideful confrontation, oh, by the way, I'm better than you are. I noticed you're caught up in this sin. I'm better than you are. I would never do something like that. Or prideful confidence. I'm not worried about that casino. I can't be tempted. I'm not worried about that gossip story. I, I can't be tempted. A false sense of pride in our own spirituality is dangerous. Look what the Proverbs writes in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Notice back to this verse in Galatians 6, 1, the spiritual are to do the confronting. It says, you which are spiritual, restore. Not the young in the faith. Not the immature in the faith. Lest they be tempted. But what Paul doesn't tell us here is how to do it. He says, yes, if somebody is caught up in sin, even though they didn't sin against you, you need to go restore them. We're seeking restoration, reconciliation. We want to make everything better. How do you do it? Paul doesn't say. Why? Because Jesus already said in Matthew 18. We restore them by using the same four-step procedure Jesus gave. Go to them individually. Go to them as a small group. Go to them as a church, if necessary, and even excommunicate, if necessary. So we've seen the problem. Somebody sins against you, or somebody's just caught in their sin. We see the process. Go individually. Go with one or two. Bring it before the church. Let's look thirdly at the product. What is the result of all of this? Well, first of all, you gain your brother or sister. Look in verse 15. Jesus says it explicitly. He says, And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Remember restoration, reconciliation. You get your brother back. Now, step two, going with one or two in verse 16. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied there. You get your brother back. And step three, bring it before the church. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, but it's there implicitly. You get your brother back. And so what is the result of all this? You get your brother or your sister back. Each step of the process seeks reconciliation. As believers, we are to seek peace, harmony, 
and unity. But this brother or sister has, a, has disrupted the peace, has disrupted the harmony, has disrupted the unity. And so something needs to be done. And if it works, you get your brother back, you get your sister back. But the other side of that coin is you lose your brother or sister. If you go to them individual and they reject it, then you go to them with one or two and they reject it. You bring it before the church and they reject it, you lose your brother or you lose your sister. Now, is he or she still a sibling? If somebody is a believer, Jesus is talking about it. They said, this is your brother that sins against you. But now they've gone through church discipline. They've even been kicked out of the church. Are they still a sibling? Are they still a brother or sister in Christ? Yes. Once a sibling, always a sibling. Once saved, always saved. We are eternally secure in Christ. If you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, believing He died on the cross to pay for your sins, that He was buried for your sins, and He rose again the third day, nothing but nothing can change that. You are secure forever in Christ. However, this brother that's been excommunicated, you no longer treat him as a brother. Notice what Jesus says you treat him as in verse 17. You treat him as a heathen. That's an unbeliever. You treat him as a publican. Now please, it's not a republican. That's different. Publican, which is a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day were despised. How do people feel about tax collectors today? The same way. He's still your brother. She's still your sister in Christ. Nothing can change that. But you don't treat them that way anymore. You treat them like they're a heathen. You treat them as despised. Has anybody ever actually done this before? I mean, is anybody, like in the Bible, is there any place where people followed Jesus' instructions of church discipline? Yeah. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, the first five verses, but I'm going to show you just a couple of those. But there was a man in the church in Corinth who was really messing up. And you have to read it for yourself. I don't want to spoil our Sunday morning by what he was doing. But look what Paul says here. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, he's talking about the whole church now, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so they've gone through the steps and we see the, the third step where he brings it before the church and they say, kick him out. But notice, this is so important. Satan will destroy him, his flesh. But guess what? He's still saved. Why? He's still a brother. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change the fact once you are saved, nothing can change the fact that you remain saved. But Paul said, you need to address this. You need to kick this guy out. Let Satan have him for a while but at least his soul will be saved. Again, remember this. If the individual repents, the individual that hurt you, the individual that sinned against you, you are to receive him. You are to receive her. And the church, we are to receive him or her as well. Again, genuine repentance, genuine confession. They come back and they say, I'm sorry, I did hurt you. I, I know we went through that whole process and I denied it, I denied it, I denied it, but, but now I admit it. I was wrong. You receive them. And we receive them. Again, I said before, excommunication doesn't have to be permanent. Where there is genuine confession and repentance, there needs to be acceptance on our. And so I know this isn't a fun message, 
But when you preach through books the way I do, you, you know, when the subjects come up, you preach on them. But today we looked at the problem. The problem is there's somebody, a believer, who sins against you. Or we even looked at it where a believer doesn't sin against you, but they're caught in their sin. What do you do? Jesus said there's a process. Individual confrontation, witnessed confrontation, ecclesiastical confrontation, and if they won't listen to any of that, ecclesiastical excommunication. Kick them out. So that you can laugh at them, so you can say, oh, that's what you deserve, that's what you get. No. To make them miss being part of the family. So they'll want to repent. They'll want to come back. And when they do, we receive them. We receive them. We looked at the problem. We looked at the process. And then the product. Going through this procedure, the whole point is to gain your brother or sister back. But the reality is, you might not. And in that case, you lose your brother or sister. Oh, you'll still spend eternity with them in heaven. But the time left on this earth, you treat them as an unbeliever. You treat them as despised until they determine, until they repent, until they confess. And they want to come back to you and they want to come back to the church and you and we will be waiting for them with open arms. The most important thing I said this morning, though, has to do with you individually and your relationship to God. Do you know that you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you believe He died on the cross for your sins, that He was buried for your sins, and He rose again the third day? None of this even applies until you've received Christ as your Savior, until you become a brother or sister. So please, before you leave this place today, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then for those of us who are believers, those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, Let's live our lives in such a way that none of this would ever be necessary. Now, we all sin, but be careful. Let's not sin against each other so that you, you, somebody got to come see us and then you got to bring a couple people with you and then you got to bring before the church. Let's not do that. Let's promote peace. Let's promote harmony. Let's promote unity. And while we all sin... And we've all been forgiven of that sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be careful how we sin and against whom we sin so that church discipline will never be necessary anymore in this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for your word, even this tough lesson from the lips of Jesus. We don't want to engage in church discipline, but if it comes up, we, we want to handle it right. We want to handle it your way. And we want to restore and reconcile. We certainly don't want to laugh and say, Ah, he got what he deserved. So give us grace. But more importantly than all of that, Lord, if there is somebody or some people here who have not yet received Christ as Savior, give them grace and faith to believe right here, right now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be sitting, not standing, but I'll be sitting at the...